Amen. Well, thank you guys. If you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, uh, last book in your Bible, all the way to the right or at the end, uh, a book of revealed prophecy about what's coming ultimately in the end, a book of encouragement, even though it's uh, in places dark and foreboding, Revelation is given to us to uplift us and to give us hope uh, for what we're suffering now. Uh, with a word that Jesus Christ in the end is the ultimate victor. And so we praise God for that. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 is where we'll be today. Uh, and if you don't have your Bible, these words will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible in your life, we don't want anyone leaving here today without a good, reliable copy of God's word. And we have those just for you uh, in the lobby. Uh, you can pick one up. They're laid out there. No cost to you. Just a gift from our heart to yours. We've been studying the churches of the Revelation, chapters 1 through 3. And this book of prophecy opens up uh, with John the Apostle, who is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's probably in his 80s, maybe even more likely in his 90s. Patmos was a rocky place, uh, a place for, to send unwanted people, undesirable people, where they would basically bust up rocks. And so you've got this guy uh, in his 90s, perhaps, who's out there punished because of his faith in Jesus Christ, because of his testimony about Jesus Christ, basically because he was living as a faithful, as a real deal Christian uh, in the midst of a culture that despised it. And he was exiled there. And while he's there, the Lord Jesus brings to him a vision of future things. And the vision begins with instructions to send letters, to write down and to send letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, But it's not just for those specific churches, it's for the church of all time. And so we read this today with fresh eyes because this is for us as well. And each chapter or each church has gotten an introduction from the Lord Jesus. And the introduction has something to do with the message to them. If you remember... In chapter 2, the beginning, we looked at the church at Ephesus. They were doing so many things right, but they had forgotten their first love. The Lord Jesus introduces himself uh, as, the word, as him who holds the seven stars in his right hands and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. A word of authority, a word of trust. I'm about to speak to you. I'm about to correct you, and I've got the right to do so. I've got the platform to do so. I am the Savior, and I am in the midst of the churches. Last week, the church at Smyrna, uh, no words of condemnation there, just words of affirmation. And the Lord Jesus introduces himself as the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. A word of power, a word of comfort. You're doing things right, and I know you're suffering greatly for it. I want you to remember I can hold you, and I will never fail you. Why? Because I was with you at the beginning. I'll be with you at the end. I even died, and I still live. I'm never going to let you down. And so today we come to the church at Pergamum, and we see that Jesus introduces himself with even a different title in order to address the needs of that church. We know how this goes. We know that a name means something, don't we? If you've ever been at home with your kids or grandkids and say, hey, buddy, uh, let's call daddy, right? What's in that name, daddy? Probably affection, probably love. We're calling daddy to tell him something good you did. 
to, to, to see when he's going to be home, to, to just hear his voice today. Daddy, maybe later on in your life you might say, hey, I need to call dad, right? You need advice, you need wisdom, you need strength. Uh, you're calling, you're going to call on your dad. The name is different, the meaning is different. You might have been with your mom one day and she said, get in here. We're calling your, what? Your father, right? <laughs> I mean, just the weight of that falls down differently. We're calling your father. What's the meaning of that? You've done something wrong and you're going to get in trouble, right? We're calling your father. There's a different meaning in the way we address someone and the Lord Jesus knows this. And today he addresses the church at Pergamum as the words or as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What's the meaning in that? In this case, it's a meaning of danger. You're in danger. And who, to, from whom are you in danger? You're in danger from the Lord himself. If you don't repent, if you don't get this right, this is a word of warning. So we're going to read this together beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. And we're going to look at this in four installments of what the Lord is saying to this church. Uh, and to the angel, verse 12, of the church in Pergamum. Again, the word angel here I think means messenger, maybe pastor, elder, overseer, uh, the, 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 the person in place at the church of Pergamum. The seven stars, the pastor. And the angel of the church of, in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, this was a place that was just a powerful, picturesque city. I mean, it was called the capital of Asia for a long time. It had a 200,000-volume library, educated, the handwritten books, by the way. I mean, ancient books, a 200,000-volume library, sat up on a, a gently sloping hill in the middle of a vast plain, beautiful, filled with temples to false gods all over. In fact, a gigantic altar to Zeus was there. And, and many, many more false gods that we could name. And all of their wicked practices were in this city. You might say, well, that's true of a lot of cities in the New Testament. It was especially true in Pergamum. So much so that the Lord Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, right there in Pergamum. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you again where satan dwells antipas uh, history holds it's not in the bible but history holds that he was killed very publicly in a, just a horrific way that i won't even talk about here i mean it's unthinkable uh, how he was publicly executed he was done this was done in front of everybody probably because he would not bend the knee to Caesar and say that Caesar was Lord and make a sacrifice to Caesar there in Pergamum. I know, uh, I, I know this, uh, you, you held fast to my name, even when Antipas was killed among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual, sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's powerful from the Lord, isn't it? I mean, this is the Lord. This is Jesus. And he's speaking to his church. And he says, listen, repent or I'm coming down there. I'm coming over and I'm going to war with them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What a church this must have been. And Jesus has a specific message for them that he gives us in four installments, and we'll try to move quickly today. The first is this. We see the praise. He opens up with a word of praise for this church. The Pergamenes lived in an awful place, an evil place with excessive, imposing wickedness. And God offers two words of strength right out of the gate here. The first is this, I know where you dwell. This is a word of comfort. God is telling them, listen, I see you. I know where you dwell. I know this is not easy. I am aware of what you're going through. What a comfort there is in that. Have you ever just needed to to talk to someone? You're just bound up about something. You're just troubled and uh, you, you don't know what to do. You go to a friend finally. You go to someone you trust. They don't have words to fix it, but just letting them hear you, just letting them understand you. If they just say, listen, I'm so sorry. Then I can see how troubled you are. And I'm going to be with you through that. I'm going to be praying for you through this. Jesus comes to him and says, I know the place that you dwell, how bad it is. Our son, Reese, we had a bad habit as young parents of leaving our kids at church uh, when they were little. And uh, it was so sad. Uh, the first was Jackson at our old church in Chattanooga. As a little guy, we drove separately. I thought Erica had him. She thought I had him. We both went home. No Jackson, right? Uh, he, had, he was still inside the church, found his way to the conference room, and was sitting in there against the wall on the floor with his knees drawn up, to just sitting there like this, when a, a, a young lady at our church found him and called us. So sad. Uh, I'll probably, he'll never get over that. But um, the second one happened here, Reese, one day. Same thing. Erica drove, I drove. We both left, thought the other had Reese. Reese was outside down here at the bottom parking lot, and he happened to have a device of some kind, um, and um, he realized he had been left. Nobody was here anymore. He was the only one at the church, and he walked up here to the, to the other entrance and couldn't get in, and so he said, he said, hey, Siri, you know who Siri is, don't you? On the iPhone, the phones, he said, hey, Siri, and Siri sometimes answers with different responses, right? And this time... Reese told us later, this time, she said, I'm here. He said, he said, he said when she said, I'm here, that meant the, all, all the world to me. My words, not his. He said, it, it, meant, I mean, he said, it just calmed me down when, when Siri said, I'm here. And that is a comfort sometimes. Some problems are unsolvable to us. But when we've got a loved one just says, I'm here. And the Lord Jesus speaks with a voice, not of a, a, an empty machine, a phantom iPhone voice coming out of nowhere, but he speaks with a voice of power, of love, of familiarity, and he simply says to the Pergamenes, I, I know. Guys, I get it. I'm here. I see where you live. You know, Hebrews 4 says that we have Jesus as a great 
high priest. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does that mean? He came down to see us, to be with us. A great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because of that, we can hold fast to our confession, even in places like Pergamum. For we do not have, verse 15, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Jesus knows where they live. But secondly, as a second word of strength is this, you have not turned from me. You haven't turned from me. The pressure was intense and they held on tight to the Savior, right? The, the, the evil was all around. Their friend had been executed publicly for his faith, and they still held on to Jesus. Two words of encouragement with two applications for us here. I hope you know today that if you belong to Jesus, you have a life and a mission no matter where you find yourself today. In the depths of sorrow, in pain, in loss, in persecution, you have a life and a mission for Jesus no matter where you find yourself. And secondly, the darker things get, the greater our opportunity becomes to live conspicuous lives of faithfulness. We sit around and moan a lot, don't we? I mean, it's like the Baptist way that the 11th commandment complain, right? We, we, uh, we, 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 we say a lot of things. We look at the world, we say, look at the evil in our world. Look how much has been lost in wholesomeness in the last many generations. Look at how dark things have become and how hopeless they feel. And sometimes we just sink down, down, down when we think of these matters. But truly, these things are an opportunity to live up to the commendation that Jesus gives us here. It's an occasion to rise up and praise him all the more. Why was Jesus able to look at this church and say, listen, I see you, I know this, and you haven't let go. He was only able to praise them in this way because of what they were facing. And so no matter where life has left you, God has a presence and a purpose in your circumstances. There's no doubt about it. And you have a divine commission from him to live to a standard of faithfulness, even, even when circumstances are screaming for you to let go. We see the praise here, but secondly, we see the problem. There's a big problem at Pergamum. It's a big deal. Verses 14 and 15 hold this. The problem was this. It wasn't denial. They weren't denying Jesus, but they, were, they, they, they had a problem that was still devastating. They were compromising their faith. And it's described in graphic terms, the, the, the error of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. And so let's look for, for a moment at what Balaam did. What did Balaam do? Who was Balaam? If you turn back to Numbers 22, you don't have to. I want you to have these citations uh, if, if you want to write them down. Numbers 22, Numbers 31, Numbers 25. Balaam was a sorcerer prophet. Uh, he uh, would sell his um, abilities the highest bidder and the king of Moab named Balak came to him and said I want you to curse the people of God because we want to war against them we want to defeat them I want you to curse the people of God Balaam tried to do it three times but God prevented it and ultimately he went back to Balak and said I can't curse them but here's what you do entice them entice them to marry 
uh, wicked women. Entice them to come into your feast and worship your God. Just gently, just gently assimilate them into who you are. Blend them into your culture, and then you'll weaken them. Then God will take his hand off of them on his own. And so that's exactly what they did. In Numbers 25, he saw his very plan succeed when the people of God began not to deny God, not to stand up and reject him, but to just say an additional yes to the wicked things of the world around them. And that's exactly what they did. There was a blending that happened. I remember something I heard back in COVID. It was, it was really gross uh, during COVID. Colleges were desperate to find out how they could test to see if COVID was on their campus. And they came up with an idea. This is really gross, y'all, so bear with me. But they would go into like the sewage vats of different dormitories. And they would scoop some out, all this mixed up sewage of 200 college students. My wife is making a, 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 one of these at me right now. Um, <laughs> mixed up college students, uh, sewage. And they would scoop it out and they would test it to see if there's any COVID germs swimming in there. And if there were, they would go and address it in that, that particular dormitory. I don't know why. I always just have that graphic memory. It just sounded so nasty to me that they would do that. Let me ask you this. What if we just got a fraction of that? Just a fraction of that material. And after our Christmas program coming up, Trey, we have the fellowship in there. Big birthday cake to Jesus. A big birthday cake like we normally have. And in that, I told you, listen, we mixed in a little bit of that stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, just a minuscule, minuscule portion of it. I mean, infinitesimal. I mean, you, you, you'll never taste it. Yeah, you'll never know it's even in there, right? Just add a little bit of color is all. You, know, just a, you never know it's in there. Would you eat that cake? No way. Me neither, right? I'm not even coming to the Christmas program now. I mean, I'm, <laughs> why wouldn't you do it? Because a little bit goes a long way. And that's what the Lord is saying here. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You have some in your church, Pergamum. You have some in your church, Poplar Springs. We, we, we have some in our church, America. We have some in our church who say, yes, uh, yes, Jesus. No, we're not denying him. Even though it's hard, we haven't denied him. We've clung hard to him, but we've welcomed in a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of idolatry. We put things before God, and we're just okay with it now. Oh, is there something in your life that you've put before God? Is there some uh, demand in your life? Is there some relationship in your life? Is there some comfort in your life that you know you have esteemed above the Lord? Some issue, some attitude, some unforgiveness, some sin? You just say, listen, I'd never say it out loud. But yes, yes, I have. Just like Balaam, I'm worshiping that God above the Lord. Is there some immorality in your life? And, and Balaam, it was sexual immorality. And in the New Testament, in, in Revelation, the word is the same, sexual immorality. Have we welcomed some immorality in our life? Young people, are we okay with certain things 
that God just isn't okay with? Have we said yes to this? The culture tells us, and those who study these things tell us, that even in the church, we have lost, they would say, lost the battle of sexual immorality outside of marriage and before marriage. That even our young people in the churches, even our pre-married adults have jettisoned any notion of purity outside of the marriage bond sexual immorality, idolatry, have we welcomed into our lives? Just a measure, just a spoon. It's infinitesimal. It's, it, you can't even taste it. it hardly, it, come on, Matthew, really. These small things that you're talking about, the Lord does not think that they're small. He even comes and says he is going to war, war with them with the sword of his mouth. Listen to 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Seriously? Is that, is that, is that where we're going? Are those the small things we're talking about in church today? Disobedience to parents? Just a spoonful. Can't God live with that? Can't God live with this sin? Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, they're never satisfied, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to verse 5. Having the form or the appearance, the shape, having the shape of godliness but denying its power. The people described in this passage are not outsiders. They are those who have taken on the shape, the, the form of godliness, but with no power. These are people perhaps in the church or who are proclaiming to be Christians, but they have no power from God. Just the appearance just the costume. And the sad truth here is you don't have to outright reject Jesus to do devastating damage to your faith. That's hard for me to say because I, I want this to be a positive place. I love you. but Listen, I need to hear it too. We don't have to stand up and reject him to do devastation to our faith. In fact, it is Christian's who are crippled by compromise, who are the most miserable, empty, and ineffective. They limp along powerlessly, and they do so in view of a desperate world, depriving themselves of God's abundance and doing unspeakable damage to the cause of Christ. It is compromise. It is compromise that is a killer. We haven't heard strong words like this yet. I'm, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I have these things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. But second, we see, third, we see the pronouncement in verse 16. There's a word here of what they can do. Two messages in response to the compromise. The first is this, a gracious command. There is, a, there is healing that can come out of this if they would repent 
What that means is to sorrow over their sin, to confess it to God, to turn away from it, and to turn to him to deliver them out of it. Repent of your sin. Repent of this. Turn around. Get away from this. And the second is this. Instead of a gracious command, we see a stern warning here. If not, I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You ever heard your parents say, don't make me come in there? I found myself saying that the other day. We have a stairs at our house, and the kids are up there doing something. I hate going up the steps. That's because I'm lazy and all the other things. But anyway, I hate going up there. I didn't want to go up there. I said, guys, don't make me come up there. What does that mean? What does that mean? I will come up there if I have to. But if I have to, there's going to be an extra cost, right? You sort it out. You sort it out right now, or I'm going to come and sort it out. And that's going to be far worse. The Lord Jesus says, you repent of this. You sort it out, or I'm going to come sort it out. And notice this. This word is issued to whom? To the church. Church, pastor, you have some in your midst who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who even follow the Nicolaitans, pleasure seekers is what they were. Uh, You have these in your church. They need to repent. No, you repent. The church has a responsibility to safeguard its purity. You say, well, that's very unkind. Everybody should be included in the church. Everybody should be accepted no matter what. Everybody should be welcome. Listen, there is a sense in which, yes, and I get that sense, but God makes clear here there is a sense in which, no, right? We have a, we have a duty to safeguard the purity of the church. In, this, in the Corinthian letter, there's a message to the, the church who has sexual impurity in it. The Apostle Paul is aghast, and he says this. He says, purge the evil person from among you. He even goes so far as to say, turn them over to who, do you know? To Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that perhaps they may be saved. Turn them out, right? If if you hold to the teaching of Balaam, if you're following the Nicolaitans, if you're in here uh, practicing sexual immorality, listen, the church has a duty to safeguard its purity. We repent of that. What's the repentance for? For not dealing with it. For not going to a loved one in the fellowship and sitting down and saying, Dear one, with tears in my eyes as your pastor, we've got to sort out this sin. We've got to figure out a way forward that honors God. And if you can't help us with that, then here's the remedy. We're repenting of you. We're we're repenting of this sin. We have to have the courage to do that. And it's the church's responsibility. There's a dangerous reality that modern believers are at risk of forgetting. And that is that holiness matters to God. Don't forget it. Young people, we've forgotten it. I'm counting myself as young right now. We've forgotten it, that holiness matters to God. It matters to God. He tells us to be holy because I am holy, because he is holy. He tells us to come out of them and the new, come out from them 
from among them and to be separate, says the Lord. Does that mean we don't go to them, that we don't reach them, that we don't uh, care about them? No, it doesn't. But it means that qualitatively and substantially our lives are separate from them in the way we live unto God. Holiness matters to God. It just matters to God. That's the reality we're dealing with here. He sees and reacts to sin's polluting influence in the life of those he purchased with his own blood. Use care in following him. But lastly, we see the promise. There's a promise here, right? Jesus says, listen, this is the condition you're in. But why don't you repent? And for those who overcome, that means for those who last, those who have true saving faith, I'm making some promises to you here. And here are the three promises. <clears throat> the first <clears throat> is that you will have hidden manna. I'll give you hidden manna. What does that mean? Unseen sustenance. It means I'm going to feed you. I think, I think that will be on the screen uh, too for you to see. It, there's hidden manna here, unseen sustenance. Uh, I'm going to provide for you even in the midst of this dark place. If you do what I say, if you follow me, uh, even when things are lean, I'm going to give you what you need. What was manna? Manna was that food that God provided in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, miraculously provided. God said, I'm going to miraculously provide for you. How, how am I going to follow Jesus in this crazy world? When my fellow students look at me like I'm crazy, when literally nobody, nobody at my school cares a lick about sexual immorality, and I'm a freak because of it, how am I going to survive in this? The way you're going to survive in this is the Lord is going to provide for you, and in fact, bless you. I will provide for you hidden manna. I will give you a white stone that's victory and access the white stone was something they would give to victors in an athletic contest like the olympics you would receive a white stone to signify that you won and that you have access to all the festivities that you're entitled to as a champion what's he going to do to these people at pergamum who are suffering greatly so much so that their friend was killed in front of them he's going to give them a white stone they will have victory he secured it he's going to give them to give it to them and as victors, they'll have access to eternal life. And thirdly, he's going to give them a new name. That's a supreme personal relationship. How personal is it? So personal that nobody knows the name except the person that gets it. Jesus is going to give you a new name that is known only to him and to the person who receives it. That is a supreme personal relationship. Nobody knows you like Jesus. In our home, we have little names that we call each other that we don't call each other outside the house because they're so embarrassing. Um, in fact, Jackson's, no, I'm not going to tell yours, Jackson. Um, they're all embarrassing. They're really, really embarrassing, and they might make you gag if you heard them. They're so, uh, you know, snuggly and, and uh, weird. I made up email addresses for the kids when they got old enough to need them. And I, I put their email addresses as their special nicknames in our family. They hate their email addresses now. 
they go for a job interview or they go to, to, for a school setting and they say, what's your email address? And they have to say out loud what dad created for them based on their little name. I brought my Pooh Bear here today. This is mine. Uh, from, from before my birth, I've, this has been my Pooh Bear. Uh, his lips are ripped off and we drew him in with a Sharpie. Um, he's, but this is my baby. When I was a baby, I had this Pooh Bear. Um, and a lot of our stuffed animals did not survive. Uh, of course, the, the house fire, because they were in the basement. But he survived, because I still sleep with him. Uh, the <laughs> I don't really most nights. But um, <laughs> I had an uncle. His name is Doug. Today's his birthday. And uh, he called me, because of this little creature, he called me Pooh Bear. He's the only one that ever called me Pooh Bear. I don't know why nobody ever picked up on it, but it, that's all that he called me all the time. Pooh Bear. He's been dead for, I don't even know, I mean, what, 10? 10 years now, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, probably been dead for close to 10 years. And to this day, since that time, since he passed out of this world, zero people have called me Pooh Bear. Don't start, please. Uh, <laughs> but if I was walking down the street today and someone hollered, Pooh Bear! I would know it, it, had to, it had to be Doug. So, I mean, he's the only one who would ever call me that. It's personal. It's only me and it's only him. It's between us. That's the message of this. Listen, if you overcome, kids, if you hang on to Jesus, adults, if we finish well, if we just cling to him, if our faith is real, He's going to sustain us. He's going to give us victory and access to the irrevocable. And we will have a supreme personal relationship with him. The priceless promise God makes to those who are his is that he is going to love you and be with you in such a loving, unbreakable relationship that there can be no comparison there's no one else who knows that name. He is a father forever, a friend who never fails, and an inseparable Savior. And you are so closely known and dearly loved by God that who you are to him, you are to no one else. Well, who's going to stand with me when I suffer this? God is. Who's going to be the one who, who cares for me? The one who knows your new name. God's going to get you through. Can I live this way, Lord, in a dark world? Can I not say that Caesar is Lord in Pergamum? Can I not follow the ways of this world with regard to cultural pressure and sexuality and the idolatry of this age, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life? Can I not do it? It's going to be hard, God says, but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you everything you need. Can I repent of this sin? God tells me, God, repent, he says. Can I repent of this <laughs> After this long, nobody even knows about this sin. I never even told anybody. Can I have victory over this? Can I go to God about it? Friend, yes, you can. He is a forever Savior. We were with our kids the other day at Zaxby's. 
there's a group of boys over here, young men or something, just using the most vulgar language, you know, hollering and you, know, you think about the whole range of profanity, whatever, they were up at, at the bad end of the range and, you know, I thought, man, that's so wrong, you know, it's just like there's other people here and don't people have manners anymore? I, all these things went through my head. But there would be a difference if at my table in that moment, my kids turned to me and started saying those things. Don't you know I would react differently? Don't you know that that makes me mad over here, that that's a, a, a sadness happening over here? But if it happens to my people, if they take that up, what a sorrow. And don't you know, I'm not going to be calling them their pet name in that moment, right? I'm going to do something about it. Jesus, why don't you lash out at the culture? Why don't you lash out at Pergamum? That's the evil place. They deserve it, Lord. Jesus says, but you're mine. I purchased you. And at what a cost. Wouldn't you follow me? That's, that's, why, that's why he's going to war with them with the sword of his mouth. Because he loves you. And if today in this message or in our time of worship, man, you have felt the rumblings of warfare in your heart over sin, over something wrong, over unrepentance, Oh, my friend, turn to Jesus. He's ready for you, and he wants to know you as his own. Let's pray together.